You are listening to episode 83 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Paul Anacone. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. I really appreciate you tuning in as always. I hope you're getting to play a lot of tennis these days. I've been actually playing a lot more myself. I've got a bit more free time lately, which is great. So I've been playing a bunch of tennis uh, with my friend Will Hamilton from Fuzzy Yellow Balls and my friend Victor from college, and I'm playing some more USA League matches, which is a lot of fun. I had a block time yesterday, and block time is actually just an another name for a consistent practice that you can set up with your club where you buy a season's worth of court time and then you kind of rotate with your group. So that's a great fun for me. I play with a bunch of friends that I have made in the USA leagues in one of the counties that I play in often, as well as with my friend Victor, as I mentioned. And over the past few days, I've actually been trying to really practice my weaknesses and things that I'm not comfortable with doing. So I made it a point to practice things like just consciously trying to hit more backhands and just serving and volleying more. And it's really worked. You know, I think a lot of times we have weaknesses, but it ends up that they're weak a lot of times because we don't, we're not getting enough reps or of course, maybe we're not getting enough quality reps. But a lot of times, the more that you hit something, the more you get the feel for it and the more you get confident in it. So I really would highly encourage you to, you know, when you when you go out there to focus focus and hone in on what is it that you need to work on and actually work on that or work on things that you are uncomfortable with because otherwise you're just hitting the same shots and not really improving and evolving, which is what's really important. So given all that, which I hope you enjoyed, I would like to turn it over to Paul Anacone, uh, well, and myself, of course. So as I did in a previous episode, I'd like to bring to you this interview with Paul Anacone. I had actually spoken to him last year on Tennis Summit 2018, and he's really a wonderful guy. I actually found it really cool that I only spoke with him once, but I then later on saw him at the City Open in Washington, D.C., and he immediately recognized me, which I thought was cool because, I mean, Paul has coached Pete Sampras, Tim Henman, and Roger Federer. And it's just incredible, you know, like the people, the greatest players in our generation that he's coached. And he's just still such a nice guy that he remembered me and he greeted me very warmly. And I thought that was just super cool. And I remember too, after he greeted me and I was waiting at the registration table to get my press credentials when he left and I hadn't even saw him, he tapped my shoulder too and said bye. So, you know, this is evidence that he's a great guy. And also I know he's worked with my my friend Othman Garma, who was on the podcast a couple years ago, actually now, and just all around great feedback from everybody. Uh, and then you can just tell from watching Paul on the commentate and on uh, YouTube and wherever else that he's super knowledgeable, very accomplished, and also very humble. So today I'm going to provide this episode for you to listen to because I think it's really going to shed some light into the top habits and characteristics of the best players in the world that Paul has coached, which is Tim Henman, Pete Sampras, and Roger Federer. He's guided them to numerous Grand Slam titles and you know Masters 1000 titles, etc. So what I want you to do is to listen carefully to the habits and characteristics of these great players and also Paul's philosophies and try to implement that into your game and your approach to improving. So uh, I think that's probably a good enough intro for you. And so I hope you really enjoy this episode. And so without further ado, here is my interview with Paul Anacone. Hey everybody, I'm Mirabon Aranshad and we're here at Tennis Summit 2018 with Paul Anacone. 
to talk about the winning strategies and habits of uh, the greatest tennis players in the world. Uh, it's truly an honor to have Paul on uh, the summit. Uh, Paul is extremely accomplished in both his uh, professional uh, playing and coaching career. Uh, Paul has coached several of the greatest uh, tennis players in the world, including uh, Tim Henman, Pete Sampras, and Roger Federer. Uh, Paul uh, guided uh, Roger to uh, two straight year-end championships in 2010 and two, 2011. Uh, he also helped uh, Roger get back to the number one world ranking uh, and uh, to win his seventh uh, Wimbledon championship. And incredibly, Paul also guided uh, Pete Sampras to seven uh, uh, Grand Slam titles, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, in addition to all his uh, coaching accolades, Paul was also uh, a world-class tennis player. Uh, he reached number 12 in the world in singles and number three in doubles. And uh, Paul also won the Australian Open uh, doubles title in 1985, and he also reached uh, the Wimbledon uh, quarterfinals as well, uh, amassing three singles titles and 14 doubles titles in his playing career. Uh, and Paul also recently published a fantastic book called Coaching for Life, uh, where Paul talks about his experiences uh, with the great championship, uh, champions he has coached, as well as his own uh, playing career as well, to give readers uh, kind of a blueprint on how to overcome challenges and succeed in both tennis and in life. Uh, and he's also got a great website at paulanacone.com as well that you all should uh, definitely check out. So, uh, Paul, welcome to Tennis Summit 2018. Uh, it's really a pleasure and an honor to uh, have you on the summit today. Well, Mirabon, thanks so much for the invitation. What a what a great introduction, man. That was pretty good stuff. I appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, Paul. Yeah, I try to do your research and obviously I've you know seen you a ton of times on TV and all that. So I'm sure a lot of the fans know a lot about you. So uh but today uh we're thankful that we're going to learn about, you know, the greatest habits and processes of the world's greatest players, as well as yourself as well. And uh so we're really pleased to have you on, uh Paul. And so I guess the first question that I I want to ask you, uh, it's actually, what, what was one of the most, uh, the, one of the toughest stretches in your career? Because obviously we, we all can learn a lot about uh, adversity and how people have overcome. So what was one of the toughest periods of your career and how were you able to overcome it? You know, it's amazing. They always, uh, you have all these millions of cliches like, uh, um, you know, if I only knew now, I only know now what I or only knew now what I didn't know then. And you have to figure out how to mix and match experience with what goes on. And and I think probably the hardest thing for me um, is there was a time when I, I had surgery, I had surgery on my foot. Um, probably, let's see, I think I was about 28, 27, 28, kind of in the meat of my career. And it knocked me out for about seven months. And that was kind of the first time I saw my mortality and, and uh, my, my uh, sporting mortality and realized that this could end at any moment. And so in, in many ways, that was a pretty good reality uh, check for me. Um, after that surgery, uh, I then had another surgery literally like four months after I started playing because I had another issue with my elbow. And then subsequently, um, I think uh, about three, four years later is kind of when I stopped. I herniated a disc in my back, which really was about the, which no pun intended, but that was the straw that broke the camel's back or broke Paul's back. Um, but all of those things really taught me a lot of stuff. But that first, uh, that, that, that first um, uh, little hurdle of adversity with the surgery was pretty startling because you take your health and everything for granted. And as an athlete, you know, most of us play since we're really young. And so that's all you really know. Then all of a sudden at 28, you see that window of your mortality starting to close. It's pretty sobering. So really what I did is I tried to just appreciate the moment when I started playing again. And also, I think I got to be a little bit more of an expansive thinker. And that, that's probably when I really started thinking about what do I want to do when I stop playing tennis because I had some time to look through things. So it gave me a wider uh, view of life's uh, uh, kind of daily occurrences and what else is out there other than tennis. So although adversity is a hurdle, I think it could be a great, it can be a great learning tool. And um, as you mentioned, you know, the players that I've been fortunate enough to coach have all been unbelievably good about dealing with adversity and accepting things that um, they can't change 
and, and doing their best to impact things that they can change and then being really pragmatic about all the stuff as it evolves, all the different tidbits of information that you have to process. And look, as you know, in the world of tennis, every week in the world of professional tennis, everyone leaves a tournament annoyed except one person. So it's not great odds. So <laughs> you better be pretty good at dealing with winning and losing. And that's why so much of my philosophy about coaching and so much about you know, about the book that I wrote, Coaching for Life, is really about process orientation versus just result orientation. And if you really buy into your process, um, the results will take care of themselves. You know, everyone's goal in life should be to get the most out of themselves and whatever your potential is to get as close as you can to that potential um, as possible. So if you, di- if you dictate your processes clearly and you stick with them, and you let the results take care of themselves, that's going to be a good recipe. And I found that, uh, you know, those great players that you mentioned, the Tim Henmans and Federer's and Sampras's are pretty amazing at doing it. And there's not one way to do it. There's lots of different ways, but they all have a lot of faith in what they do. And they're all very pragmatic about the occurrences that uh, kind of jump up along the way. That's wonderful advice, Paul. I really appreciate that. And and you mentioned your first setback uh, physically. And I'm curious, you know, you just mentioned processes. So is there anything, because I know it sounds like you definitely had a sort of a mental shift after that, but did you change anything in particular in your processes or your, your daily habits or anything like that after your, your first setback uh, to help you, you know, come back uh, even stronger? You know, I, th- I actually think what I did is, initially actually started working too hard. I I actually wanted things too bad, um, too badly. And and I think that that was one of the shifts I had to make was that there's a big difference between working hard and working smart. And at 27, 28, you think you know a ton. And then when you have a little bit of fear instilled in your process that your career could be over, then you really put your kind of foot on the gas. And I worked really hard, but if anything, I kind of overtrained. Um, I overtrained a little bit, but more importantly, I kind of forgot what got me to be a really uh, world-class player. And I tried to spend way too much time on things that I didn't do well in the tennis court. And that's a dangerous thing because what happens is if you don't do things well and you spend a ton of time on them, it gets pretty frustrating because you're not giving yourself very much positive reinforcement. So it took me a while to start to learn how to get the balance of shoring up my weaknesses, but don't forget what your strengths are and make sure you maximize them. That's great stuff, Paul. And I'm just curious to dig a little deeper in that. I mean, I know that, you know, obviously you were a great servant volleyer. Um, but so when you talk about uh, kind of overtraining, uh, what, what areas did you kind of maybe cut back on a bit so that you were ensuring that you were just, uh, that you were training uh, maximally on your strengths and and things like that? Well, I think what I started to do is I I got pretty um, over the top about um, kind of off-court training. I spent a lot of time running. I spent a lot of time on the track. I lost a ton of weight. um, And I thought that this aerobic conditioning would be great for me when in actuality I think I went a little bit too far with that and I lost some of the power in my movement um, and I was training in a way that probably wasn't suited to my style of tennis game and so what happened was I had a better aerobic base but I kind of lost a little bit of um, explosivity kind of this a little bit of the explosiveness the ability to really um, cover the net and do things that got me to where I was so it look there's, there's, you know, I just think that every, anyone that thinks that there's one answer to everything's in for a rude awakening. And especially in tennis, when you get so much information, things constantly shift, you know, when you have to be really thoughtful and on your toes to be kind of pragmatic and kind of um, uh, really unemotional about reacting to your environment. Because if you let emotion kind of flood in, I find that it's very difficult to progress because you have too many highs. Um, I'm sorry, too many lows, and, and the highs are there. But the biggest thing is the extreme. The difference between the two is so vast that it really kind of beats you up. It becomes an emotional roller coaster. 
Right, Paul. And so Pete talked about how you're, you know, very even keel guy. And so uh, to kind of build upon the point, I mean, what were some things that you maybe did in your daily life that helped you stay even keel? Because it's really tough, especially on the tour. I mean, there's a lot of things that I think normal tennis players would, would be driven insane about, like the pressures to, to win and get the points mm-hmm. and get the money. So what are some things that maybe we could take away from what you did to become more even keel? Well, I think part of it was getting comfortable in that environment. Look, everybody's environment's a little bit different. And as you go through your process as a pro tennis player, things change, expectations, pressures, both self-imposed and what's real. Um, And so for me to be with Pete, initially I was pretty young. um, And I, um, you know, I think I was 32 when we started together. And and I, I, his ex-coach who was battling brain cancer at that time, mm-hmm. Tim Gullickson, was a great mentor to me. He really helped me understand the way to go through all of these great experiences, but pressure-packed ones. You know, Pete was supposed to win everything. So that adds a lot of pressure when you are at tournaments and then you have appearances and sponsor commitments. And so for me, you know, the, the habits that I had – I really kind of go back to to my parents mostly. They're both school teachers. And I think the biggest thing is I, I had a pretty good grasp. I hate to use this term, but just kind of a grasp on reality. You know, it's it's sports are great and I want to maximize my potential. I want to help maximize my players' potential. But life is life. There's a lot of stuff out there. And if you are fear-based, whether it's fear of failure or fear, fear of success, you're going to struggle. And, and so I tried to minimize um, the pressure by understanding there's tons of opportunities. And if you work hard and you work smart, um, there's going to be lots of opportunities to come regardless of what happens on that day. Right, Paul. And I'm actually just curious, obviously, it sounds like your parents had a great impact you uh, on you. Um, maybe what's one one thing that sticks in your head that either of your parents uh, told you that you kind of take take forward with you as you uh, well, I, go forth. Yeah, I had a good balance. My mom was pretty emotional and pretty driven, and she was the one that pushed my career really hard when I was younger. And I went to Balateri's for four years in my development. And my dad was the more kind of, I would say, stoic and kind of pragmatic personality. So I got the balance of the passion and the energy from my mom. And I probably got a little bit more of the expansive kind of retroactively um, evaluating things on an even keel from my dad. So I got a little bit of both. Um, and that helped a lot. And also my brother who coached me is five years older. He was very even keeled and he was really smart about how he went through things. So I never felt an inordinate amount of pressure. He helped me kind of relief. Uh, release that pressure pressure and when I felt pressure it was mostly for myself I, I basically did it myself I put it on myself so that made that made it difficult so I think it was a combination of those three people my dad my mom and my brother that really helped give me a nice balance that's wonderful Paul and so um, obviously you know it's, it's really important to start the day off right and you know you were uh, a world-class athlete and now world-class coach and so I'm, I'm curious about if you had any particular uh, sort of morning routine uh, that kind of helped you, you know, start the day off strong. Yeah, I'm actually a morning person. I have been for a long time. So I actually like to start the morning and I have historically kind of by myself, you know, just uh, I start the morning, whether it's with like a healthy breakfast or uh, a workout or I've done that for years. And and a lot of that came from my college coach, Mike DePalmer senior, because he liked to do morning workouts. And I felt like I did my most kind of impactful uh, self-evaluation and also kind of thinking in the morning, kind of before lunch, I seem to be most uh, kind of tuned in. And so because of that, my morning routine has been pretty similar the last kind of 20, 30 years, which is wake up, exercise, take a moment, go through my to-do list, and then just think about things that I wanted to try to accomplish um, on that day, both uh, kind of micro and also macro. Um, And so I try to make sure that I build on that stuff, which is, I think, good 
for me because it created good habits. It created habits that helped me know myself better. Some people aren't very good morning people, so they prefer, you know, and I don't think you can necessarily change everything about that kind of person that you are. So you have to figure out when you do your most impactful thinking and working and, and kind of structure and prioritize your day so you can maximize those moments. But mine I'm pretty clear about, and I seem to stick, I've stuck with it for a pretty long time. Yeah, it sounds like a great way to start the day, uh, you know, the exercise and, and figuring out what you want to accomplish. And I, it's definitely made a great impact in my life, too, to, uh, to keep it consistent in the morning. So um, obviously, you know, we mentioned uh, Roger, Pete and Tim. I kind of wanted to, uh, to dive in with uh, Tim first and just want to ask you, you know, what character trait or traits in particular made Tim uh, such a, a world class athlete? You hit the nail on the head. He was an amazing athlete. He was a great mover. Um, one of the lightest people on his feet uh, in terms of around a tennis court back in the day when he, you know, when people actually came to the net often in tennis. Uh, Tim was great at that. He was a great volleyer. He was very athletic, tremendous hand-eye coordination. And I think one of his best attributes that people don't really know is he's one of the most optimistic people around. He really appreciated and appreciates life and enjoyed what he was doing. And I think that helped him deal with um, pressure. It helped him deal with failure and success. And I think it drove him on a day-to-day basis because he had a good time doing things. Um, but that athleticism and that movement and the ability to be so good at the net were probably his biggest strengths. That's great stuff, Paul. And obviously, you know, there was a lot of pressure. I mean, he had several semifinal results at Wimbledon and other places. And I was wondering to, you know, how you kind of saw him deal with that, like that huge pressure really of just, especially playing in, in his home court. Yeah, it was hard. You know, he, you know, uh, obviously before Andy Murray, so he had a ton of pressure and, and, he, every time Wimbledon came around, you have to realize England is a, is a country with a ton of newspapers and a ton of tabloids. And so, you know, there was a, a lot of rhetoric and there was a lot of speculation, pontification, all this stuff every time Tim would play. And he's a caring, sensitive guy. And I think it's, I think it was really hard on him. Um, one of the things I tried to implore him to do was to not look at the press particularly kind of the month before Wimbledon until the month after Wimbledon so that he didn't have to deal with the monumental highs and lows um and so I I you know people often talk to me about you know and there's a lot of folks that I've heard from England too say you know he that he wasn't a success he was a huge success um he would be one of my models of professionalism, one of my top, because he got to be ranked four in the world. And that's probably where his talent was. He wasn't as talented as Andre or Pete. He wasn't quite in that category. He was just below that. And that's where he got. So his macro goals, I think, were achieved. The micro goal of winning Wimbledon or an event wasn't achieved. Um, and he had, you know, he had a few tough losses to Pete. Um, he had a tough loss to Goran Ivanišević in the finals in 2001, I believe, Wimbledon. I'm sorry, in, yeah, 2001 in the semifinals to Goran. So that was a tough one. But did he do anything glaringly wrong? No. And so my whole philosophy um, is – you know, my dad taught me this, which is, you know, whatever you're pursuing, you want to exhaust all your resources to give yourself the best chance to achieve those goals. And I think that's exactly what Tim did. And and so for him, I would think he sleeps quite well at night. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he definitely gave it his all. And, and so with Tim, you know, obviously you mentioned, uh, just like you, he was uh, such a great servant volleyer. And I'm curious, um, especially maybe if there's a few takeaways from his serving volley game, you know, what in particular did he do at the net or any sort of um, uh, strategy that he employed at the net that made him such a successful serving volley uh, player? Well, technically his volleys were really sound, both forehand and backhand. Um, His um, movement at the net uh, is incredible. I mean, unbelievably laid on his feet, um, really has incredible anticipation. Um, And most importantly, he understands 
all of the angles and ways to cover the net. He was a great mover after the volley. So he covered the shot that most likely was going to happen next extremely well. So when you combine all those things, it's a pretty good recipe to become a great volleyer. Gotcha, Paul. And so how did um, how did Tim kind of differ from Pete in maybe his demeanor or, you know, how, how uh, he looked, uh, you know, before a match or anything like that? Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Um, I, I think Pete was much more introspective, a little bit quieter, a little bit more to himself. Tim's a very gregarious personality um, and enjoys lots of people and being around lots of people. But both of them were very, you know, they both of them were very professional. There's no... I didn't, you know, both guys were really good about preparation, equipment, mental, physical, um, nutritional. I, there wasn't really much of a different in that area. And so when I look at all the different players, Roger, Pete and Tim and, you know, even Sloan, the people that I've been around, you know, everybody's preparation, their personality traits are different, but they tick the boxes in terms of being prepared. You know, are they mentally prepared? Are they nutritionally prepared? Have they done all their work? Um, is their mind focused? So there's different ways to get there, but as long as they get there for their personality, for me, that's uh, that's a check in the box. Good stuff, Paul. And so um, maybe a tough question, but what, uh, what do you think uh, was the key to uh, Pete's, uh, Pete maintaining the number one ranking for so long? Um. I think he became really comfortable there. Um, I think it took him a while. You know, he told me it took him a while after he won the U.S. Open in 1990 to get kind of clear in his conscience what he was playing for and why. And, and first, it was mostly about trying to win as many majors as he could. Um, and then all of a sudden, he started – he became number one – and then all of a sudden he was on track to break Jimmy Connors' record of being year-end number one five years in a row. So Pete inevitably did it that sixth year. So Pete did it six years in a row at number one, which he thinks, and I probably would agree, that that might be his greatest accomplishment because you kind of only get one chance at that. You know, you can only be six years in a row number one probably, no matter how long your career is, probably only once. The grand, the major totals for Pete at 14 was spectacular, but you play four a year. So if you don't win one, you have lots of other chances. So we, we've had some interesting conversations about that, which I find uh, very provocative. Um, but the biggest theme is he got comfortable being number one. He didn't stress out about it. You know, he didn't sit around and look at the ranking points every week. Um, he knew that if he maximized uh, the major events, then he was probably going to finish number one that year. And so he really just kind of went through his process in a really thoughtful manner, like he did everything else. And like I said, became comfortable at number one. That's a, it's a tough phrase to grasp, but to understand what it feels like to be number one and be okay with it without panicking, without looking over your shoulder, without worrying, without being neurotic. I mean, it's, it's a hard position to be in. It's great but it's also complicated and it takes a unique person to manage that. And Pete did it very well. That's great stuff, Paul. And so you mentioned in a, a previous interview that uh, you haven't really, you've never really seen a, a, an athlete uh, greater. I'm sorry. You've never seen a, an athlete have greater focus than uh, Pete Sampras uh, out of pretty much anybody you've coached and, and that he was able to focus during the most critical and pressure packed moments. So, I mean, what in particular helped Pete to be able to, uh, you know, focus in these moments? I think he really understood his environment. Like, I think Roger's an incredible at it as well, but they have very different environments. Like Roger's environment is very busy. Federer has a, you know, he's a global icon. He embraces who he is much more than 
as a brand much more than Pete did when Pete played. And Roger came to grips and has come to grips with it. And when Roger's on the court, though, he's very good about keeping things, you know, in a mono focus and tunnel vision. Pete, in order to do that, wanted to keep his life outside the courts pretty much like that as well. So when Pete got into the biggest moments, he was very clear about what he did well, and he didn't let anything jeopardize that. And, and ultimately, he got to the point in his career where he really believed. He's one of the, you know, he's one of the few athletes – Roger's like this too now, but there's very few athletes. There's a big, you know, there's a very common phrase that says, oh, it's going to be really fun out there. I'm going to enjoy this. But I can tell you firsthand, when I walked on the center court at Wimbledon playing Jimmy Connors, it's frightening. It's hard to really enjoy that. And I think the greatest of athletes really do. So it's one thing to enjoy it. It's another thing to really trust your skills in that moment. And that's what Pete did incredibly well. In the biggest moments, he just, he just felt he's going to come up with the biggest shots. And, and that's a hard trait to teach somebody. And I think he got better at it because he was there so often. That's great stuff, Paul. And so were there any um, maybe non-tennis things that Pete did that helped him develop his, his focus even more? Um, I mean, did he, for example, read or do anything artistic or anything like no, that? I think I think Pete kind of embraced who he who he was and who he is. He knew he had to have a pretty controlled environment, didn't like a million people around all the time. He was very organized and very methodical about his structure. Um, he enjoys sports and appreciates excellence and athletes that excel. So basketball and football players and people that excel, he enjoyed that. But I think his really his understanding of himself was one of the biggest driving um, factors is that he knew what he liked in his life and what he didn't. And he kept it pretty simple. And and so how was um, Pete able to, uh, you know, pretty much dominate with the seven volley uh, game in the face of uh, obviously, you know, a lot more baseliners. I mean, what did he do that was so special that helped him succeed like well, that? Well, he, he kind of played at the end of the Servimbali era. Um, I think he probably had the best second serve I've ever seen under pressure. I don't think anyone – I just think he just believed in the biggest moments that he could hit a 118-mile-an-hour second serve against Andre in the corner, you know, an inch from both lines, and he trusted that. And, and – so I think because he trusted that and because he was successful and able to fail enough times but keep doing it, that's, that's the trick. You have to be able to fail enough times without it crushing your confidence so you can keep getting better at it. And that's what Pete did. And I, and I think that you know, he was a tremendous athlete with an incredible serve and with the ability to um, really focus in such a narrow scope at the biggest moments. And that's a very challenging trait to teach, but I think it comes from being there often and from believing in yourself and doing all the hard work. And that's kind of what he did. Great stuff, Paul. And so this next question might help more of the players who are uh, tend to be of a calm demeanor like Pete, but uh, obviously you, you were with Pete for so many matches, Paul. And so, you know, what was uh, Pete's kind of, ritual before matches like what were the things that he would do maybe the hour two hours before and a few minutes before you know the match day you go for your you know you go for your warm-up you get the body going and then you hit probably he would hit for anywhere from 25 to 40 minutes and then after that it's usually you know a light meal and then in the locker room right before you know literally you know half an hour 45 minutes before you know, to re-gripping the rackets, getting the mind focused on what you were about to do. And then the last kind of five to 10 minutes, it's just getting the feet and body going to get the blood, you know, to get the pulse rate up and get ready to go out in the court. So he was pretty um, consistent about always doing that. Actually, all those guys were. Roger's the same way. Roger, you know, would do his warm-up, um, then have a meal a couple hours before he plays. Um, make sure his rackets, the equipments, and everything were ready. And then the last hour before he plays the match, just a quick review of what's going on. Then uh, you know what the strategy was, and then just the get the body ready, get out in the court. 
That's great stuff, Paul. This one is more of like a, I guess, fun slash interesting question. But what, did uh, Roger and Pete have like a go-to uh, meal before their matches? No, it's usually complex carbs, you know, usually pasta, um, just and not a ton of it, you know, just enough to top things off. Um, and, you know, a couple hours before they play, just a pasta and something complex and, you know, they can get into their system for energy. Um, obviously the hydration part's really important, making sure there's a lot of fluids in their system leading up to the match, but it wasn't like that, the same thing all the time. Good stuff, Paul. And so I think it was Roger that, uh, you know, had a great, uh, gave a great review on your book and he mentioned, uh, how you both would, uh, set goals. And I was just wondering, you know, how your approach to setting goals with Roger, you know, how you went about that, you know, was that at the beginning of the year or, and also, you know, how big were the goals that you all would set as well? Well, when we started together in 2010, you know, we had long-term goals and the long-term goals were really just a couple different things. At that point, it was to win another major. Um, and it was to try to get back to number one. That was in 2010. And then, that that you, you talk about those, I mean, those are discussed. We discussed that in our initial meeting, just about like, what do you want to do? Um, you've done so much in your career already. What motive, you know, we had meetings and spend a bunch of time together, just getting to know each other. So I could understand his methodology. And then I could kind of plug it into tennis works to try to achieve those things. Um, so those were the long-term goals that we talked about. And then it was about me understanding his process and giving suggestions about what we can and can't or should and shouldn't do to try to make sure that he maximizes his skills. Um, and that process was really the micro reflection of what are we sticking with it? Are we making sure we stayed on track? And ultimately when you're with great players or great athletes or anyone of excellence, if they stay on track, and they keep being diligent about what their process is, the results are going to come. And that's what I talk about a lot in the book is that I think a lot of people get so discouraged or they get insecure or create doubt um, that they don't give themselves a chance to maximize whatever it is they're trying to achieve. And I think that's one of the big differences between, you know, great and good in anything. And I think great um, gives themselves a chance and they adjust and adapt to both success and failure in a way that allows them to maximize the opportunities so that they can kind of reach their goals. Right, Paul. And so obviously um, Roger has talked about us having a unique ability to, you know, both brush off like any, any tough um, losses, let's say, and think ahead to the future. What do you think makes him be able to to do that? Because, I mean, there's a lot of people who will dwell on uh, what has happened and, and have that ruin their future prospects. So how does he deal with that so well? Well, a couple things. One is he's won so much that <laughs> I think that helps. Uh, I think I actually do think it helps. But also, I think the painful losses, especially when he was younger, he realized that, um, again, I, I, I'm a big believer that his life's perspective allows him so many benefits that most of us don't understand. And what I mean by that is that he genuinely really loves his life and, and realizes that if he doesn't win another match, his legacy is kind of fine and his life is fine. And he loves his kids. He loves his family. He loves to live his life. So that, that, that perspective allows him a freedom to compete without the fear of the what ifs. You know, like, what if this happens? What if that? Because he doesn't go there because he just allows him, you know, he has that liberty to go out there and kind of unconditionally compete without worrying about perceived consequences of what might happen. And that's where most of us mere mortals go wrong. We get wrapped up into that world of perceived consequences of what might happen. And that's our, a major reason for our downfall or shortcomings. That's a wonderful point, Paul. And so when you step back and kind of evaluate Roger's career, uh, you know, from that perspective, I guess his whole career, um, what things, it could either be technical, tactical, mental, uh, what things did he kind of change through his, his whole career, his involvement rather, uh, that really helped him the most uh, in becoming the great player that he is today? Well, he's pretty interesting if you think about it because he – kind of became great 
at the end of the Sampras Agassi era. You know, that's kind of 2004, Andre was wrapping down. Pete, Pete really was finished. So it was more the end of the Andre era. And that's where he started being great. And so at that point, he had dealt with power and serving volleyers. And then it started to become a different game. But for the next kind of three years after that, he really dominated. And then he had to start to deal with that lefty from Spain. You know, then he had to start to deal with the great Rafael Nadal, which has been a struggle for him because Rafael Nadal, it's a really tough style matchup. Um, and, it, you know, it was very difficult and is very difficult to beat him. I still think one of the hardest, I think the hardest thing in tennis is beating Rafael Nadal three out of five sets. The hardest thing is beating him three out of five sets on clay, but the hardest thing, uh, second hardest thing might be beating him three out of five sets. And, and Roger had to wrestle with that. Then he had to wrestle with Novak and Andy. And now at 36, he's number one in the world again. He's won three of the last five majors. How do you, I mean, it's hard to really comprehend that journey to me. And I've seen a lot of it up close and personal, but I really believe so much of it is um, driven by his emotional disposition. Um, you can't ever set, you know, you can't ever say enough about the physical athlete that he is and his ability to do things at an extremely high level very economically and very efficiently. That's another reason why his body has lasted is because he does things. It looks like he's floating most. I mean, he's working his backside off, but it just doesn't look so labor intensive. He's had a great trainer in Pierre Paganini since he's been 17 years old. Um, so he's done all of the things the right way. And because of that, his abilities are still at this ridiculously high level but I'm a big believer that most of it is driven by his emotional disposition. Gotcha, Paul. And, you know, obviously we're all mesmerized by his movement. I'm just wondering, you know, if somebody wants to get uh, developed movement like that, I mean, what, what, what should they do? I mean, like, should they, is this more of like an issue of getting a general trainer or movement specialist or changing your technique or, I, I mean, how can we kind of do that? I think it's all the above, but I think you have to start it when you're really young. You know, I think he's always been really graceful since he's been a kid. And so you start those habits when you're young and that allows you to get better, stronger, and faster. And those habits are ingrained in their good habits. So they just get better as you get older. But the biggest thing is getting the right kind of movement for the type of athlete you are and ingrain those habits when you're young. Gotcha, Paul. And so, you know, before, um, you know, Rogers matches, when you were kind of assessing, you know, what to do out there, can you kind of walk us through like, what is a general, uh, approach or like things that you would discuss with Roger as, as far as like preparing for a specific opponent? Sure. One of the things about Roger, which is great, is he, one of his biggest, um, one of his biggest uh, idiosyncrasies is that he, he has no, like, there's no, he doesn't have any things that he has to do all the time. In other words, sometimes we would talk about at night for a long period of time, the night before we'd go through YouTube clips and we do stuff, talk about, and Tom, sometimes he would say, let's just talk tomorrow at the courts for 10 minutes. So in other words, he doesn't have these superstitions that override stuff. And every time, you know, before matches, I would, you know, as we would get to tournaments, I would say, you want to chat tonight or you want to do it tomorrow. And sometimes we would, you know, it just depend on how he felt, but we would mostly just talk about strengths, his strengths and how to plug them into his opponent's weaknesses and patterns to look for. And then we would take the conditions and the environment into account and go through a few different things. And it, it, it really is pretty, it's simple in so far as he just buys into a process and you know that you can just repeat it. That's awesome stuff, Paul. And obviously, I want to talk about your fantastic book, as we mentioned at the top of the uh, session, which is Coaching for Life. And I just wanted to kind of ask you, you know, how the book is structured and, you know, the content inside of it. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. I appreciate the, the asking about it. Um, it really is. It's kind of my journey as a tennis player and a person and a coach. Um, and what I really what I've done is taken a lot of stuff that you're asking about and use that stuff and the players that I've coached and my own personal playing experience kind of as a metaphor for life. 
You know, you can't teach somebody to be a great athlete. You can't say, okay, you're going to now have Roger Federer's forehand, or you're now going to be able to hit Pete Sampras's second serve under pressure. So what I tried to do is examine really closely the traits that allowed them to maximize their skills and the processes that allowed them. And I tried to put it in a book form so that people could understand a lot of those traits are transferable, no matter what you do, whether it's tennis, or you want to be a lawyer, or you want to be a teacher. A lot of these processes that these guys have are emotional and mental abilities that allow them to really focus in on what the task at hand is and allow them to kind of deal with any adversity or any pressure um, that's in front of them. So I just tried to take all my life's experience, look at the potholes and the speed bumps that get in front of us, and try to anecdotally go through different situations where I either did it myself or I saw Pete and Roger do it, and I was able to kind of tick the box and go, wow, this is something people can really learn from. And so that's how I structured the book. Um, with a lot of anecdotal stuff in there with some nice stories about things that I was able, so fortunate enough to be able to see from a great seat with all, with those guys and with Tim as well, because, um, you know, you never stop learning. And whenever, every year around people like that, it's a great opportunity. I felt like I learned a ton just being with them. So, um, hence the idea of the book and there it is. Awesome, Paul. And so is there any, maybe section in particular that you, maybe would like to highlight uh, for the listeners that you thought was really illuminating in in respect to um, how helpful it would be for, um, you know, the reader. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, one of the biggest things is about um, there's a, there's a chapter about a sense of inevitability. Champions have a sense of inevitability, which means that no matter what kind of adversity you throw at them, they're able to push all this stuff aside. They're able to sift through all of the static and all the stuff around it and then find a way to accomplish what they need to. And for me, that was a really a great study because so much of a, so much of human emotion, what we do gets wrapped up in frustration and, and we can lose clarity of what we're trying to do. And those great athletes that I, were at, I have been around are amazing at it. They don't get sidetracked. They don't get knocked off the horse, so to speak. And deep down inside, they believe that ultimately they're going to figure it out. I'll find a way regardless of what has, what's in front of me. And I kind of call that a champion sense of inevitability. Fantastic, Paul. Yeah, I think I was listening to a podcast recently about somebody who uh, they asked him what was the key to, to being great. And he said, just never give up in the face of whatever you uh, may encounter. So uh, wonderful advice, very motivating as well. And so um, we will definitely uh, we'll have a link below uh, for you to check out Coaching for Life. But for those uh, uh, in the audience who want to uh, find it, uh, Paul, where, where is uh, Coaching for Life? Where, where can they get it? It. Uh, you can get it at paulanacone.com or you can get it at uh, amazon.com or you can get it at iriebooks.com. I R I E books.com. Those are the three main places. Order it online and there's a digital version and read it and uh, write me a nice review. I could use a couple good reviews. <laughs> For sure, guys. Write Paul a review after you read his fantastic book. And uh, so I just like to close, Paul. Um, uh, with asking you one final question, which is, you know, what is uh, one key tip that our audience can uh, can just implement right now uh, to help improve their tennis games? The biggest thing I think is prioritize your goals, prioritize the most important things, and give yourself a little sense of perspective and appreciate that it's not going to happen really, really quickly. If you can do that and understand that, if you're able to prioritize the goals, have from have some perspective about self-evaluation, you're more than likely going to get there. Great stuff, Paul. Well, uh, once again, uh, truly an honor to have you on the summit. Uh, You've just had such a wonderful playing career and you've coached uh, such incredible athletes and you do such great work in regards to commentating and everything. And so thanks so much for all your contributions to the tennis community. And we uh, really appreciate you uh, being on the summit. Thanks so much. And I'm sure it's going to be a great summit and everybody's going to have a good time and learn a lot. Hopefully have a good time too. That's right. Thanks, thanks a lot, Paul. 
All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Paul Anacone. Again, I really appreciate everything that Paul is doing for the tennis world and for speaking with me as well, of course. So I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that by hitting the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app or iTunes in particular. You can go to tennisfiles.com slash iTunes. And I'd also like to leave you with a quote, as I often love to do, and as my video editor requested me to do. <laughs> and this quote is by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. And I hope I pronounced that correctly. And Johann said, Knowing is not enough. We must apply. Wishing is not enough. We must do. I think that's a great quote because a lot of times you can fill yourself up with so much knowledge and yet you'll never act, you know. Maybe you'll just keep researching forever or you'll keep studying YouTube clips or reading tennis files or listening to the podcast or any other resources. But what you really have to do is get on the court and apply what you've learned and experiment and see what works. Because if you sit around and don't do anything... You could be the smartest person in the world, but nothing will happen for you. So I hope that you enjoy that quote as much as I do. And uh, as always, you can go to tennisfiles.com slash podcast to check out all the episodes, as well as, of course, use your podcast app, your favorite one that you use to listen to podcasts. And for this episode specifically, the show notes will be at tennisfiles.com slash 83. So I'm working hard to launch Tennis Summit 2019. I think that's what it's going to be named. So Tentatively, that is it. That is the title. But I am still going to put out these podcast episodes too. I know in the past, I've been kind of overtaken by the summit in the last two years where I haven't really been able to be as consistent as I wanted to be for the podcast. But especially with the help of my video editor this year, well, podcast and video editor, uh, Omar, I fortunately will be able to stay consistent with everything. So with that, I implore you to get out there and improve your tennis game. And uh, I know it's probably cold for a lot of you, including myself, but uh, there's always indoor courts. And especially if you split it with somebody or with four people in total, it's not too bad. So anyways, with that, I wish you a very safe, healthy and happy winter season. And I'm looking forward to putting out more great content for you to improve your tennis game. And I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.